to the book of Philippians, chapter number 3. As you're finding your place, let me just mention there's a sign-up sheet on the back table. Uh, if you want to receive email updates of uh, Johnny and Abby's uh, ministry in Romania, you need to write your name and email down so that they can be able to have that. And uh, you can stay up with what's going on and how you can pray for them. I know, guys, I understand we don't do well with sign-up sheets here. They only got two weeks left, so uh, I would suggest sign up today uh, at the end of the service. So there should be a pen back there, and you can take care of that. And uh, you'll want to stay up with them. They'll need the prayers, and you'll want to know what's going on. So it, it does two things. Helps you to pray for them and, and feed your curiosity of what's going on in Romania, right? And so uh, do make sure you sign up for that in the back table there. They'll be leaving in two weeks. I also want to thank those who come from uh, Green Pond and, and New Jersey uh, this weekend. What a joy it is to uh, an encouragement, blessing uh, for us as they come and uh, just encourage us and meet so many needs at the ministry center. Such a joy to have them and fellowship with them. And, and um, so we, we just thank you uh, for that and, and your service to us. And it just reminds us as a church uh, just of how... Uh, big the kingdom of God is. How many people has really blessed us and poured into us and uh, benefited us and how God has allowed us, this body, to bless others and benefit others. And so we just want to continue to do that. As summer starts, many ministries in this area, Christian ministries, proclaiming the name of Christ. We want to be praying for them uh, and uh, lifting up those who are who will be serving there this summer. Philippians chapter number three, if you're visiting with us, we've been going through the book of Philippians and, um, and we're in chapter three this morning uh, and a great passage of scripture, uh, really uh, one of the great ambitions of our church it ought to be of us uh, individually, and that is to know him, know Christ and to make him known. Uh, it ought to be our desire as a church in our prayers and our discipleship and the ministry center classes and one-on-one uh, -on -one discipleship and our Wednesday night and preaching and our Bible studies and boys brigade and girls Bible studies all of that uh, ought to be with that desire to know Christ and to make him known uh, and to teach and to grow in our understanding of who Christ is it's been my personal desire uh, out of this passage of scripture for a very long time and I pray that God would continue to stir that in me well, I want to begin reading in verse number one. We'll read the first 11 verses of this great chapter, and then we'll look at it together. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your reminder this morning. We just pray that you would just speak to us and encourage us as we have gathered together to hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we use maps, not the old paper kind that you had to unfold. You needed, you know, just a large space to try to figure out where you were going and trace the lines and to get from one destination to another. I'm talking about the app on your phone where you just plug in an address, you close your eyes, take a nap, and, and just wait for it to tell you to turn left or right. Uh, it is amazing how advanced the technology is. We're driving down the road and you have the thing on and it tells you, uh, what is that, speed something ahead? You know, it tells you there's a cop there waiting on you. Yeah, uh, And so we... We have the benefit of just plugging in where we're going. We don't need to know anything about anywhere along the way. It tells us to turn right, turn left, and if you take a wrong turn, isn't that amazing? It reroutes automatically. And it doesn't even rebuke you, you know? This is a good example for us how we can love one another. But anyway, uh, it has not always been that advanced. I remember years ago... Uh, we were coming home from church on a road that was very narrow. Um, basically, you either lived on the road or you were lost if you were on the road. And, and in, in the process, about halfway through the road, there was a very sharp turn and a one-lane tunnel underneath the railroad track. The turn was so sharp at the end of the tunnel that you could barely get a pickup truck and a small trailer through it, let alone anything bigger than that. As we were coming home from church that evening, we come up on the tunnel and lo and behold, we seen a semi-truck sitting there in the middle of the road and the guy looked as lost as you could ever look. There was nowhere to turn around. There was no way to go forward. He was stuck. Uh, not in the tunnel, but he was stuck right there. And of course, everyone there is like, um, how in the world did you ever get here? Well, the guy said, well, I put the address in GPS. I knew where I was going. And I just followed what it said, and I ended up here in this, this contraption. What he needed was someone to, to, to put some warnings on the route in which he had taken. He needed someone to tell him, if you're driving an 18-wheeler, you're not going to make it going this way. And that's kind of what Paul is doing here for us. Uh, he has given us the destination, his desire for the church here in Philippians in verse number 1. And, and you'll look at that with me. He tells them, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. And his, as most scholars suggest here, they think Paul is just trying to come, an end, come to an end to his letter as he states finally. I know there's debate about that, but let's just say that's the case, right? You can debate that later. 
And his goal for them, his desire for them, is that the church, this small group of believers that he's writing, would rejoice, be actively rejoicing in the Lord. So dogmatic in his mind that when you get to chapter number 4, he again circles back around to the exhortation, by the way, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. He's wanting them to get it. It is something to be said as he writes to them, rejoice in the Lord, and, and it's not a trouble for me to write the same thing to you. We are in an age of novelty where we always like to have something new. Tell us something fresh and something we haven't heard before. And yet Paul says, no, I'm going to tell you what, what I have already told you. I'm going to instruct you in the way in which I've already instructed you. And in much the same way Peter tells his readers. Second Peter, he tells them that I am going to remind you of these things that you already know. And just for by way of personal application church we are encouraged by the same old truths that we've been taught from years gone by and sometimes that's what we need most reminded what the word of god says reminded what christ has promised us reminded what we already know because not only is it not a trouble thing for him to to uh, tell them again to rejoice in the lord he says it is safe for you to hear again and again what god has done for you and to hear again and again what we ought to do in response to him. His desire is that they would rejoice in the Lord and in, in telling them again that and, and helping them stand fast in the faith, it, it's almost as if he, he's thinking along the way of all the trouble that would take away that rejoicing. You see, it isn't just that he wants them to be happy or even joyful or even rejoicing, his concern is that that whole phrase, rejoice in the Lord, be kept in their minds and in their lives. He wants them rejoicing in the Lord. And, and the warning he gives to us in verses 2 and 3 is about those who would take away that rejoicing. They would distort what they're rejoicing in or they're trusting on. And so he begins in verse number 2 with a strong warning. Look at it with me. He says... I want you to look out for dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He says, We're the circumcision who worship by spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Three times he speaks to them and, and encourages them or commands them to look out, to pay attention. Uh, to see this and, and give heed to something. There's danger on the way. There's, there's things that stand in your way. Things that would draw you away from what God has called you to do. And, and what he has blessed you with. And he says you need to look out for that. Uh, don't just be uh, blind as you walk the Christian life. And take everything, uh, take everything that comes at you with the name of Christian. He says you need to be careful. You need to look out. There's people who will come and disrupt your faith and distort the gospel and, and, and deflect anyone who comes who is seeking to come to trust in Christ. He refers to them in strong language here saying that they're dogs and evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh. Historically, the Apostle Paul faced many 
of these kinds of oppositions. It's almost as if they had his itinerary. And some of you have watched those old cheesy cop movies where, you know, they're trying to tell someone and hopefully not, not, you know, be seen as they're driving behind them. And it's almost as if these guys are standing behind the Apostle Paul and says, oh, he's going over here to Philippi, wait 30 minutes and then go along and, and maybe he won't notice you and you can go in after him. Because everywhere he went, you had these, these Jews, what often referred to as the circumcision party. They come up and they, they begin to look past Christ and to bring something else to the church and say, you know, that's great. Jesus is awesome. But what you really need to add to that, to be perfect, to be complete, to be truly a child of God, to be truly accepted and embrace all the promises he's given for you, you need to be circumcised. Oh, and here, this is what our rabbis used to teach us about the Sabbath. And they would add all of these things to the church. And, and Paul is saying to these believers here, he says, you need to watch out for these people. It's not just a casual uh, misunderstanding or, or just something we're just like, oh, we can overlook that. It's just a small idea. No, he says, these guys are working these guys are striving and promoting what is evil, evildoers. Isn't that fascinating? Those who are so fixated on the law that they would push upon the Gentiles, and he's saying what they are doing is demonic, doctrines of the devil, as he tells another church. In fact, he refers to them as dogs, which is a, almost a slap in the face, if you will, and dogs were not pets, and they're not treated like children in the Bible days. You know, they're not man's best friend. They were unclean animals. Just their diet alone, I won't even go into what one commentator said. It's not worth bringing up, but it was pretty gross. And they looked at these animals and anybody who, was, who, was, who had touched them or with them as being ceremonially or ritually unclean before God. And it's no wonder that in the Bible, uh, in Jesus' day, they referred to Gentiles as dogs, those unclean beasts and their unclean appetites. Well, Paul is saying those who promote themselves as being children of God and righteous before God, he says, they themselves are unclean and filthy. Be careful and watch out for them. They're doing the work of the devil, who, let me just remind you, is not idle. He doesn't take a day off, continually and consistently perpetuating uh, dissension and false narratives and false gospels in the world. His servants are steadily after it. And, you know, we have to be careful in our day because we live in a world where uh, many, many people who claim the name of Christ or say they're Christian or say they're following Jesus have major platforms and influences and we listen to them. Well, the exhortation is the same to us. We must watch out for those who would deflect us or detract us from Jesus Christ. Those who would cause us. And that's the problem here with these. Those who would insist on circumcision, but not circumcision alone. Uh, all of the Old Testament rites and all the things that they eat. And it's subtle, isn't it? Maybe they would say something like, to be truly spiritual... You need to be circumcised. 
And, and no child of God would ever eat bacon. Probably wouldn't be a good message in America today, I'm sure, since that is one of our food groups. <laughs> Just when you put it in ice cream and chocolate, there's lines you've got to draw, I guess. But anyway... But, you know, really to be right with God, you've got to observe all of the traditions that the fathers gave. And over and over, they kept putting weight upon people. And they do the same thing in their day. They keep putting weight upon people and they burdening them down with a law which they themselves cannot keep. And he's saying, be careful, because the problem is, is they're taking your confidence that is in Christ they're taking your, your assurance, your hope, all that, that keeps you, and they're putting it in you, in yourself, in your flesh, and what you can do and, and what you can earn. That's what Paul is saying. We, we put no confidence in the flesh at the end of verse number 3 because we glory in Christ Jesus. To say it another way, uh, to say it another way they were pointing beyond Jesus, away from him. And boasting that you can do it yourself if you work hard enough. Now, you and I, as we listen to others, we have to be careful and discerning. And we should ask, what is this person pointing me to? What are they preaching? What are they trying to, to set my attention on? Where are they trying to put my confidence? Is it, is it in me? Is it in my strength? Is it in me being enough all by myself? Or is it putting my dependence and confidence in God? That ought to be a marker for us as we come to understand what he's saying here. But why is it so dangerous? Well, beloved, it's so dangerous because it confuses the gospel. It distorts it. It mixes it all up with, with you and what you do and, and Christ and what he did. And somewhere as it all mixes together like a mud pie, it, it offers you something other than what the gospel is. And for those of us who have put their faith and trust in Christ, it frustrates your sanctification. Because you're constantly going back trying to trust in yourself and trust in your own way and never fully resting in what Christ has done for you. But not only is it dangerous because it confuses the gospel, distorts it, but it's dangerous because it conceals the gospel for those who are not saved. It, make con- it makes converts of whatever system they boast, but not converts of Christ. And that's a damnable, dangerous thing. But I would say thirdly, not only does it conceal the gospel, it robs God of his glory. Because again... It's rejoice in the flesh. Again, I say rejoice in the flesh kind of gospel. And Paul says you need to be careful. If you're going to rejoice in God, you must understand and know that there's many who would take away that boasting, that rejoicing, and put it on themselves or or put it on your works and your efforts. And so Paul goes in, secondly, not only does he speak about this warning Verses 2 and 3, but he, he gives a kind of a summary of his own testimony at the end of which he says was a waste. He uses the word rubbish or as the old King James refers to as dung. You can work that out yourself. But uh, he goes through this testimony in verse number 4 through 7 that he wants us to consider. Notice it with me. 
if there is a way to have confidence in the flesh, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You can kind of see as he gives us his pedigree uh, and his achievements, his religious ambitions. And, and really what he's countering here about the false teachers and those who would say, no, you can do it. And, and if you do all this stuff, if you just obey the law, you can have confidence. And Paul's saying, if it was possible to boast that way, if it was worth boasting that way, let me just say, I've got them all beat. For us, it would be to say another way, if you was ever going to be good enough, Paul would have been that. He would have been there. If there was ever a reason to boast in your own success or your own achievements and, and just say, you know, I have made it, I have arrived, Paul says, I'm head and shoulders above you. Now notice how he argues this out. First of all, he gives us his pedigree, his is as a popular word in our culture, privilege, right? He says, well, I was circumcised, a Jew, on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. And I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's saying I was born in the right family. And I was a Jew. I was brought under the law. I had God-fearing parents who obeyed the law and, and brought me and did the sacrifice that they were supposed to do. I was circumcised. All the things that was required of my parents to do, they were, they were so devout uh, and, and such of the right lineage, he says, that we kept our culture. We, we did not just move off to Tarsus and, and was Hellenized like the rest of the world, like many of the other Jews. We spoke Hebrew in the home. I, um, a friend of mine in the army, his wife was, uh, I'm not exactly sure where in Mexico where she, her family was from, but uh, she didn't speak Spanish, but she understood it. Oh, you can kind of see sometimes that culture loses itself in translation as you kind of move along and you're here long enough. Paul says that wasn't us. We retained the Jewish heritage. We retained the Jewish culture. We were proud of who we were, the people of God, the promised, uh, all the promises and the chosen race. He says, we were blessed. I was blessed. I was born in the right family. Let me just say this, that some of you who have come from good homes and good Christian families, what a blessing to have believing parents. And someone said, hey, you used to have a drug problem. They were drugged to church every time the doors was open when they were kids. What a blessing. But it's not enough, is it? Not enough to stand in both. Well, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid. I went to vacation Bible school. I went to, fell asleep during revival services and, and the sawdust and, and all the other stuff that went on. And, and Paul says, if there was a reason to boast in the privilege that he had received by the providence of God, I, I'm here. But not only does he speak about his own privilege, he speaks about uh, his, his pursuit or his religious ambition. He goes further to say, I was a Pharisee. 
Pharisees are ugly people in the Bible. We know that in the New Testament. No one likes to be called that. It's a bad word. To the Jewish people, they were the elite religious group. The most strict and righteous and and kind of God-fearing. You know, they were the super conservative. They carried the big Bible, you know, or whatever you want to call it. He was a Pharisee. Following the laws of the Father, conservative, God-fearing in that sense. And, and he says, that, that's who I was. And as far as Pharisees go and his zeal, he persecuted the church. I wasn't just one of those guys that complained about what was going on wrong. I did something about it. And then he goes further and says, as far as the law is concerned and the traditions of the fathers and all the other things that went along with it, I was blameless. They say sin is deceptive in the first person it deceives is yourself. That's the case with Paul. The arrogance to think that according to the law you could be blameless. But he is saying, he's looking back over his life and says, this is who I was. This is what I put all of my chips in. That, that I had arrived and I had made it because I had all this stuff going for me. If anyone had room to boast, if anyone had room to say something of himself, look how hard he worked, look where he was born, look where he came from, look how disciplined he was. Yet in all of this, he says, it was rubbish, it was waste. Now we don't count those same kind of credentials in our society, but we do hear things like that, don't we? After all, it sounds a little like I, I try to be a good person, you know. I haven't killed anybody, I don't think. I haven't hurt anybody. I even support those humane societies for animals. I don't even know why they call it that, but you know what I mean. Pay taxes. I'm doing my best. It's the same thing Paul is saying. In all of it, it is, it is trying to, to put all of your weight, all of your chips on this idea of what you do. What you can achieve. And Paul is simply saying, if it was possible to do that, I'm way ahead of you. And even at being way ahead of you, I'm still inadequate. I'm still lacking. That's what he says in verse number 7. Look at it with me. He had all this going for him, which he refers to, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Isn't that odd to think about faith in Christ or coming to faith in Christ as loss? We hardly ever say that. You come to faith in Christ, we speak about the gain you get. And here Paul is, is, is weighing out the, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ and what he wants put all of his chips in, all of his hopes in. He's saying that, that there was a measure of loss. There was a measure of loss. A rich young man testifies to this, doesn't he, in Luke's account comes to Jesus, as you know the story, many of you, where he, he says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus tells him, well, what does the law says? And he names a few things. He said, well, go do that. And he says, I've done all these things. What else do I lack? Well, if you're asking, you've done all those things, then go sell everything you have and come and follow me, Jesus says. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. 
That's a sad story, isn't it? Is there loss? Well, from one perspective, there is. But Paul says there is greater gain. Even in Jesus' words to the rich man, when he says, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven, come and follow me. He's saying, sell all these temporary things that enslaves you and be rich in heaven. But he could not see it. Adding it up, he could not value what was truly gain, what was truly worth it compared to, to this over here, all of his wealth and all of his stuff, his greed and his covetousness. It enslaved him. In fact, Peter goes on dealing with this idea of loss and gain as he asks him later on, Jesus saying it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. You know the story as it goes in Luke chapter number 18. And it's like the disciples are standing on the outside and saying, we left everything to follow you. You remember that, you know, he comes along and says, come and follow me. And they drop their nets, they drop their boats, they drop their livelihood, they drop their family and everything. And they go follow Jesus, wandering around Judea and Jerusalem and all that for three and a half years. And he says, what's in it for us? That's what Peter is asking. What about us? And Jesus said, you didn't leave everything that you will not in this life be repaid. And he says in 18 through 30 of that chapter, and in this age, eternal life to come. Is there loss? From one perspective, yeah. But from the other, there's gain. There's greater gain. I mean, think of, about the missionaries who left the comforts of America and running water and health care and all the things like that to go to disease-infested countries where they have to walk or ride on the wrong side of the road and all the other stuff that they have to go through. They could live a normal, average life. Is there loss? Well, maybe with some comfort and some, some family closeness, but there is great gain. That's what Paul is trying to highlight here. What I held on to, what I boasted in, I lost, but I lost it for the gain that's found in the excellency of Jesus Christ. To say it another way, there's, there's no comparison. This is what I boasted in. This is what I bragged about, but then I saw what... What was mine, what was offered to me in Christ Jesus? And he says, I lost it. I give it all away. I give it all away. And what is Paul counting his loss? Well, he's counting his foolish ambition. His self-righteousness. The comfort he found in himself and in his zealousness. His prestige and his confidence in his own strength, his his merit which he earned, and 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 all the other stuff that sounds a lot like the nonsense of positive thinking, where you look in the mirror and you say the same thing over and over until you believe it. He was willing to let all of that go, and that's really all that that was for what could be gained and what could be had in Christ. In fact, he sees the value exceeding far exceeding 
in Jesus. Notice, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And that sounds bad, doesn't it? And if you just rip that out of the verse, you say, I've suffered the loss of all things. We'd almost say, poor Paul. Poor pitiful man that suffered the loss of all things. But he's saying, no, I've suffered all of this that I may gain Christ. It was all rubbish anyway. It was all garbage anyway. Do you think that about what the world has to offer? Do you see the greater value and gain in Christ what the world has to offer and what value is it he says what is he gaining look at it again in verse number 8 well the gain is Christ at the end of the verse in order that I may gain Christ not just from Christ but Christ all of Christ all that he is and all that he offers is ours given to us all that he does we share in all the promises that the bible has is ours in him he's he's saying that what i gain is christ himself sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of that the christian life isn't just receiving a little bit from christ but is that united to we receive him himself he gives himself to us in all of his offices, in all of his glory, in all of his work, that we may benefit and rejoice in. Paul clarifies what this means even more, not just Christ himself, but more importantly, his righteousness which he gives to us in verse number 9. I count all this as rubbish. Here this great Jew and Pharisee who become a Gentile or a missionary to the Gentiles, lost all of his prestige, lost all of his following, lost all of the the comforts of his own people. He was rejected and hated and sought to be put to death by them. And yet in all of that, he says, I rejoice because I get Christ. He says, verse number nine, why it's so beautiful. He says, because I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And what do we mean by righteousness? It's kind of like one of those words we use. We know what it means, sort of, and then we kind of don't. If we had to explain it to someone else, we're, we're kind of reaching for some way of defining it. And let me just define it this way. By being or doing the right thing. By being or doing the right thing. Paul speaks about this and the word of God speaks about this or sums it up under two great commandments. You know those are, don't you? Deuteronomy 6, 5 or Matthew 22, both lay them out for us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest commandment. Doing the right thing, being right, is loving the Lord your God with every part of your being. Okay? Secondly, he says it's like unto this in Matthew. He says, love your neighbor as who? 
doing the right thing, being righteous, at least from a biblical standpoint, is following the law of God and doing what it tells me to do, and that is always loving God and always loving my neighbor. Here Paul tells us that he, is, he was attempting to, to attain that righteousness from the law, but the law is just a standard. It is just a do and don't. It just judges the works which we commit, the things that we do. It, it can't do anything other than judge us. It's in stone. It stands against us. It doesn't tell us and doesn't make us, give us that way of being right. And we're left in a predicament. Because you and I don't always do the right thing. Amen? I mean, a couple of you are honest this morning. None of us have always loved the Lord our God with all of our heart, our strength, and our mind. And we don't always love our neighbors ourselves. Can we agree with that? I think you're still wondering about that a little bit. It's true. Our righteousness is filthy rags. So there is this righteousness which he, he speaks about concerning the law, which is, is earned, but the predicament is that Paul couldn't earn it. In fact, what he says later on, it was the law which exposed him and convicted him of his sin. Romans chapter number 7, he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. In many ways, we're come to see this, this thing which Paul wanted, and that was to be right, to do right. The very thing he hoped to achieve and was attempting to do in his own strength and his own ability, it, it, it was like chasing smoke. It was impossible. All the goodness that he could achieve and all the goodness that he could do was marred by his unrighteousness. His self-righteousness and his, what he had earned was, was deceptively inadequate. You know, when I was preparing for our first sunrise service, my first sunrise service here out at the woodshed where we have it. You always go at the woodshed for trouble, but, you know, out at the woodshed, we were making preparations, and so I put on my suit, wore a tie that day. No one made fun of me. That was good. And I went out. My dress shoes, my dress pants, my suit coat, my tie. And can I say this? I was poorly dressed for the environment. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever spent Easter here. Some of you avoid Easter here in the Adirondacks for good reason. Because you don't know what it's going to be. It's, it, it really is like trying to find something. But... My clothes were not adequate for the season or for the environment. Why well, I didn't wear a jacket or anything else like that, who knows, but last time I was adequately dressed. All I'm saying is, and what Paul is telling us is, the righteousness from the law which he sought to achieve is inadequate. It cannot clothe you. And in fact, all it can do, if that's what you attempt, if that's what you're working for, it will leave you open and exposed. It was not enough, and it can never be enough. 
But Paul says in verse number 9 that he has found in Christ. What he has gained is, is that relationship, the gift of Christ. And in him, there's a different kind of righteousness. There's a gift, different kind of rightness. But it isn't Paul's. Isn't that good news? It was someone else's. It was Christ's righteousness. We speak about this theological language of that imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us, placed in our account, attributed to us, we're declared righteous, we're declared right before God as if we, as if we always love God with all of our heart might and strength and as if we always loved our neighbor as ourselves. And you know what? That is a gift of God. That's what Paul is saying here. What I have found is the very thing I long to find in my own strength and yet my own strength failing me I found in someone else's strength. That's why rejoicing in your own flesh and, and being led astray by your own ability and your own goodness and your own talentness is so deceptive and wicked because it, it robs you of the very source and substance in which we can rejoice in. That God has freely given to us a rightness which we could not ever earn. Think about that. Jesus lived this life 33 and a half years fully Truly human, following the law of God. Never a moment in his life where he disobeyed the Father. Never a moment where he took the goodness of God and the gifts of God and bowed down before it either physically or in his heart and made an idol of those things and worshipped something other than the Father. Always honoring the Father. Always keeping the Sabbath. Always loving him and revering his name. Never Coveting his neighbor's stuff, never hating his neighbor, never mistreating those around him inappropriately, always loving his neighbor as himself. And the Bible says, it's so amazing, isn't it? The Bible says, just as he has obeyed and loved the Father and loved his neighbor, so we too are seen as having done that. And he says, this is what God offers me and what he has given to me in Christ Jesus. No wonder I let self-righteousness go and all my pompous pride and all the other stuff that, that got me high in my previous life before Christ because it is nothing. Because everything is given to me in Christ. Everything is given to me in Christ. And isn't that amazing? Not only is everything found in him he says it is through faith, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. And basically what he is saying is the righteousness of God is a gift. It is a gift and not what you've earned. Continually distancing us from that works-based kind of salvation, saying, no, you could not. Don't you see the pity and goodness of God in that? And don't despise that by thinking, well, you're an exception to the rule if you don't know him. Don't think that, that you'll make it differently somehow and despise his goodness when he says, no, I'm offering this goodness to you and this grace to you. It is a gift. It is a gift to lose all the false notions of hope and embrace all of the true, sure promises of hope found in Jesus Christ. 
Paul speaks of this in the book of Romans as their justification and that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just read this for you. The righteousness we long for and have many times through futility sought after can be only found in Jesus Christ. But what goodness and unexplainable love which extends and clothes the dirty and needy in such lavish and rich garments as his own perfection before God. And this at the cost of his own grace, his own expense to which we have been freely offered and have freely received. And by faith, the Bible tells us that beggars and sinners enter into the kingdom of God dressed in the robes of their prince, never to be exposed before God as what they once were, nor to feel the final verdict of guilt which calls out condemned. For his righteousness, his rightness is theirs. It is ours. It is mine. That is the promise and the gift of the gospel. No wonder we're told at the beginning of this to rejoice in the Lord and to be careful of those and watchful of those who might steal your rejoicing and put your confidence in anything else that is inadequate and insufficient. My encouragement to you this morning, if you know Christ, what other application can you have but rejoice in him? And if you don't know him, all that you would come and experience the goodness and gift of God to be right before him based on Jesus Christ is so much freer and better than you trying to do it yourself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for this beautiful passage. There's a great deal... In this, I pray that you would just let our minds be encouraged by what your word teaches us. I pray for those who are here this morning living in the midst of their own frustrations, that even now they would turn from those things, let go of them, and embrace by faith Jesus Christ. He lived for our righteousness. He died for our our sin and he rose again so that we might have everlasting life all oh, that they would just put their faith in him now father be with your people today and help us through your spirit to have the eyes to see and the heart to rejoice in all that you have done for us in our savior in jesus name amen